It's quality viewing right there. And no, boys, we don't have one of those magic washing baskets at home. <laughs> Good morning, Troy. No, don't go there. Don't even go there. Just let it rest in people's minds. Excellent. How are you, Troy? Doing okay. Good. We're talking about this type of, thing of entitlement. What, yep. does, what does that word entitlement mean for you? Um, lovely having Sharon share some things. So it's a little bit of overlap. Uh, and for good reinforcement's sake, when I think about entitlement, I think about this image. If you were into cycling, you'll know what this image means. Because in 2012, the man who's lying down on the couch there, Lance Armstrong, was stripped of all of his titles um, because the suspected... Uh, drug doping cheat that he was became prevalent and obvious and uh, so the uh, official body stripped him of all his titles. He'd won seven um, uh, yellow jerseys, so he'd won the, the tour seven times and he was basically the top cyclist for, for a whole decade. And uh, soon after that happened, he tweeted this image and this little phrase underneath, just back in Austin and just laying around as though to say to everyone in the entire world. Is there world, something important about those yellow jerseys? Yeah, yeah, because that all been stripped of him, but he just goes, you know what, so there's a whole mixture for me when I looked at that was of, of um, pride, arrogance, just I don't care, don't give a rip about anyone else, but here I am just lying down and that, that's an image for me of kind of entitlement um, all wrapped up there. So a, a definition that I'd put down too as I was thinking about these things is it's that conscious or unconscious conviction that I am more deserving just because of who I am. Yep, yep, that's good. And um, there's an illustration I had of this, uh, the Q one that you had earlier on for just having a, a chat with people. Um, some years ago, uh, our family was over on um, Christmas time over in the Philippines at a centre called Kids International Ministries helping serve there. And uh, we were about to uh, jump on a uh, air flight to the, the second part of our holiday time and we're in Manila Airport. If there's one airport you don't want to be um, caught in, it was the old Manila Airport, not the new one. We were there and our flight was cancelled and so we were transferred to the new Manila Airport and we hung out there for 12 hours sort of waiting to see if we were going to get on to the next journey of our real fun part of the holiday time. Um, and in the evening, we were wondering if anyone was going to get out of Manila Airport. And then there was this movement at the ticket sort of desk. And there was a rush to the t ticket desk. And I just remember looking around of all the people who were stamping their hands down, waving their passports and getting really angry. And it was all the Westerners. Um, and if you had have just in that moment looked at it and gone, hey, I'm at the front desk too. What is it about us that feel like we're more important than everyone else that was sitting down? Yeah, it's entitlement. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Um, so that was very obvious. Yep. How does, how does entitlement um, impact people spiritually? Yeah. Um, in a number of different ways, I think entitlement has that attitude within you that says, um, you owe me, life owes me, and, and even to the extent of this is that, that God owes me. Uh, I remember having a conversation with a car mechanic, uh, my car mechanic, many, many years ago. And we got on talking about life, God, spirituality. And, and he said to me, Troy, if God doesn't let me into his afterlife as a result of all the good things I've done and the charitable things I've given money to, I'll be awfully ticked off with him, right? And so I just said to him, look, I'm not sure it kind of works that way. Um, and there was this sort of sense, isn't it, that if there is a God, he owes me. Um, and I think it impacts us spiritually because it kind of distances us 
um, from God and in a number of different ways. It's interesting because you sort of ask, where, where does that come from and where have I heard this language before? Um, and, I, and I go back to, to the garden. So um, there's uh, Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3, the, the beginning part of um, the Bible. It takes you back to um, first humans and it's kind of this spotlight sort of shining on what constitutes a human and why is it the way in which we are. And um, here in that garden state, so you have two trees in particular amongst all the other trees that are figuratively set out. So you've got tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's God calling the shots. Um, what's right, wrong, up and down, good and evil. And then there's another tree, the tree of life. And the assumption is that those two early hominids, so Adam and Eve, if they are inside that garden state, God invites them to continue to create sacred space, ordering the world and the way in which he determines is right, wrong, good and evil, up and down. And whilst they have access to that tree of life, they continually live. They're not subject to the forces of death and decay. And then there's this subhuman creature um, in the form of a serpent that comes and asks Eve a question and says, did God really say that you weren't to eat of any of the trees? And then that precipitates. Usually in temptations in our life, starts with the question that we ruminate on. And then this is the response that the serpent gives to her. You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be fully opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's some truth to this. Firstly, that the serpent knows that God is good. Um, And they don't die straight away. They eventually do. So there's something about God's compassion and kindness and mercy that the serpent's aware of. But there's another thing he appeals to, and that is that... um, God is holding out on you. And, and, and if you really aid of this, you get to call the shots yourself. Imagine a world in which you get to call the shots. And so the story then goes on and says, so that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She gave it to the man right next to you. They ate it together. And then the whole thing unraveled from there. And so a part of the story that rolls throughout the entire narrative is that whenever someone sees something, it's like, look out, they're about to do something reflexively bad. And that when humans get to call the shots, right, wrong, good, evil, up, down, left and right, we typically do them really badly. And so there's all kinds of messes that are result from this instinctive move in us to say, I want to call the shots. And that, if you like, I think is one of the critical things that severs this disjoint between God and humans. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to take it a little bit further, a little bit deeper, you know, in the, in the world, what's the problem with entitlement? What, what's, you know, how, how do you see that play out? Yeah, well, I, I suppose I just ask a question. Um, could you imagine a world in which people felt entitled, like everyone felt entitled? Oh, that's our world. Wouldn't be pretty, but it's reality. <laughs> uh, in the in that, there's this this instinctive sense sometimes within us. It's uh, a reflex action. Is that I'm at the centre, I'm more deserving, and, and if I can use other people as kind of like stepping stones to get to where I want to go, then then I will. Now, if I pause there for a moment, I'd say that um, honour works in a different way. 
Um, honour is giving due respect to people who it's due. And the Bible actually continues to say, honour one another. So respectively, honour one another. Honour authority figures around about you. Honour God, honour parents, honour leaders around you. Um, and so that's an upward movement. And, and if you are unable to do that upward movement, then you're going to have problems in life because you're going to have issues with authority and you're going to continue to bump your head into um, people in situations where you are unable to give due respect. The, the opposite of that, though, is the entitlement side where you press down on other people. And it's the idea of using who I have and the resources around me and the attitude I have towards other people to actually see them as stepping stones. So I have this picture in, in our family home growing up. I would have said uh, to the kids multiple times, when you're interacting with people, uh, be aware of those who lead around you or instinctively do this in their relationships and those who do this in their relationships. So lifting people up. Yeah, yeah. And so it's this idea of actually putting others ahead. And when you're around them, they're the, there's people. Now, we don't always get this perfectly right. We've always got mixes of those things. But more often than not, are they someone who does this or someone who does this? And to be really aware of the difference between the two. Yep, so that's the, that's the problem of entitlement in the world. What's the antidote? There must be an antidote. Yeah, there is. And so we've, we've touched on it and it's just so, so critical. So there's this passage in the book of James that says this, God is opposed to the proud but gives his grace to the humble. So you've got the half-brother of Jesus writing these things. It's pretty uh, amazing the insight he has. Uh, this is quoting from a proverb, uh, another part of the Bible. But God is opposed to the proud but gives his grace to the humble. That is that... When someone's humble, they actually look beyond themselves and look outwardly and they look up for help with God. I mean, if, if you don't have that disposition, then you won't go to God asking in the first place. You will be more interested just instinctively to try and control all of the things around in your life and be the center. But there's this wonderful insight that says, if you humble yourself, God is opposed to the proud but gives his power to accomplish things in our lives that we cannot achieve for ourselves to us. And we often meet God, often I find, at the end of our tether. So if I could give you an example, just a pragmatic example of where I've seen this um, kind of at work. I might be wrong in this, but many years ago, um, I took some of the kids to a state cricket game. Now, if anyone here has ever been to a state cricket game, uh, you'll know that there's like 20 people who turn up. And I went to the MCG and there was two teams. It was Victoria versus Tasmania. And as I looked down on the boundary line, there was this little huddle of kids that were sort of moving around to their cricket heroes. Occasionally when there was a four hit, the boundary markers were set in by about 20 metres. Um, it was state cricket. And the kids would move around because one of their heroes might come out to the boundary line and they get a chance for the hero to sign their cricket bat, right? And I remember standing in that huddle, just sort of waiting. And these kids had waited for 30, 40 minutes. And the ball was hit out, and, and a, a, a guy who was in and out of uh, the national team for a number of years um, ran out and was one of the heroes. And he went and picked up the ball. And just before he was about to throw it back and return, I went, wait a second, there's all these kids waiting here. So I, call, I called out to him. I said, hey, mate, um, do you reckon you could sign some of the kids' bats, you know? And he looked at me, and he said, uh, oh, nah, it's a bit far. Right? And, and I responded to him over the boundary line. I said, oh, well, I'll jump the fence and bring him to you if you like. 
And he, he said, no, no, that's okay, mate. Turned around, threw the ball back, went in. All the kids were left. The, the, the teams changed. All of a sudden, it was the Tasmania team in the field. And there was a guy by the name of Ben Hilfenhaus, right? Now, anyone who remembers Ben is a great bowler. He was in the cricket team, the Australian cricket team, more than this other guy. And he was hanging out on the boundary line, completely different attitude. He was signing bats. He was having a conversation. He was enjoying the time with ever. And, and I just have watched these two people, their careers over 10 years, and noticed, oh, the Victorian guy never got a secure spot in the Australian team. When I raised this with someone who was on the inside of the Victorian team, they said to me this. They said, oh, yeah, that player was known for someone as someone who liked his bags being carried for him. And That's I just tell. wondered... <laughs> Is that the reason why he actually didn't get in the Australian team? Is because he had all of the skill, all of the skill, but actually he was disruptive to team. Um, and so that's a powerful one. Yeah, that's, that's entitlement right there, isn't it? And it blinds us. Yep, yep. Um, um, so talk, talk us through some thoughts on how do we journey towards, yeah. you know, like a fuller, healthier, yep. you know, relationship. In terms of relationships with others and with God. Yeah. There's one critical place in the Bible, I think it was when I was thinking about this, is uh, important to go. And it's a story about um, a man by the name of David. He's a king and he's been elevated in the family to, to take on leadership of God's people. And sometimes we are humbled. Sometimes we humble ourselves. But I find more often in life that if we carry these blind spots around with us, we're usually humbled before we humble ourselves because they're blind spots. And so the story goes like this. Um, David, when he should have been going out to war, it says that he stays back and he hangs out in his citadel. Anyone's been to Jerusalem and walked around his citadel, uh, the, the most important people get the tallest buildings. Did you notice that? And so he's one day looking down from the parapets and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba and he likes what he sees. Now, some commentators want to actually kind of retrospectively say, well, what was she doing up there in the first place? But I think actually... Um, Actually, she was entitled to be uh, bathing in her spot. He wasn't entitled to be walking his citadel was not and having a look been. down. Yeah, And so he did. And he likes her so much that he um, invites her into the palace. I don't think it was an invitation. Sleeps with her. She falls pregnant. And then she sends news back to him. He panics. Um, he tries to, because uh, he knows that he's married, the, the man, the husband's off at war. He brings him home. Eventually, he eliminates him. He kills him to get him out the way. And he thinks at the end of all of this misappropriation of power that no one's seen him. He's scot-free. Ba-bow. Until God sends one of his spokespersons by the name of Nathan to David. Now, he's got all authority Right, And so Nathan comes really curiously here and he needs to come very, very wisely. So he comes telling a story, not pointing a finger. And this is how the story goes. Nathan meets David. David has no idea that Nathan's coming to tell this story. And he says this, There were once two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing. But one little ewe lamb, it's called, he had brought. He raised that little lamb and grew it up with his children. And it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. I mean, this is the classic Aww. pet amongst pets, right? 
And then he goes on and says this, One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, David, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Right now, here's the kicker. Here's the response. Horrible story. I know. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. I mean, this is the duplicity of blindness, right? That he doesn't even know it it any way relates to him. You're the guy. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. And then that's the moment that Nathan turns the table and says, David, you're You're the man. Yep. Now, to his credit, if there's any credit in this, is that David goes, you're right. It's me. How could have I been in this place? So there's this powerful, powerful psalm that's attributed to David. I don't know if you read it before or uh, wrote it before or after. But the line goes like this. Somewhere in the middle of that Psalm 139, he finishes off with these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path that is everlasting. I think, I don't know if it was before or after, but it seemed as though David had this reflex action also to routinely come before God and say, God, I want to do an audit. Would you do an audit of my life? And so if there were some things that I think are so critical in this when it comes to our own relationships and getting along and how destructive they are, is to have margins in our lives where we routinely come before God and come before ourselves and ask some critical questions. So the first one for me is this. Take a stock take and practice the humility things that Sharon was talking about. I have this little saying that goes, whatever is beneath me sets the bar above me in the kingdom of heaven. If I can't scrub the toilets, then that sets the bar above me in how far I will move, if you like, in the ways of God, in in the world around about me and how I'll begin to treat other people. So I have to have a critical observation of my own life. Where are the parts in my life that I'm starting to, if you like, reflexively reach towards entitlement times? And so I observe my behaviour. I wonder what it would be like for people to observe their behaviour. The second thing, and I think it's humility's next door neighbour, is honesty. Because we really like to tell ourselves lies. And so a critical conversation I think we all need to have is, and God, where am I cutting corners? Troy, where am I cutting corners? And where am I doing things that I said I would never do? And what are the things I give excuses for and say are all right when they're not? And that's, that's a conversation that only you can have with yourself. Is that, am I starting to cut some of my own corners of my values? And to ask those questions before some guy called Nathan comes and tells you a really terrible story. A- absolutely. Says you're the, yeah. Absolutely. And look out for the moments in which Nathan will, will come. Um, and they usually come from a family member or someone who really knows us close. But the third thing is to set aside, uh, and this becomes really important, to set aside the margins of the routines of my life to ask a searching question of God. God, you know me. And I give you permission to do an audit on my life. Now, usually I find that God is more gracious and generous. He doesn't often come with a piece of 4B2. He actually comes with a gentle voice. 
and and if we don't pay attention to that gentle voice, he'll send someone with a gentle voice. And if I don't pay attention to that person with a gentle voice, then usually then it'll all go belly up and I'll be humbled. So we, we, you're alluding to an idea of a practice that we've actually put on our app. Um, so it's called Examine. And it's got a number of questions that you can ask. So we would really encourage you to go away. And you might take these questions from Examine. So there's the two, um, there's the, what is it, five things, there, four things there, four questions that you can ask of yourself. And there's a whole lot more detail around the idea of Examine as well. Not that Sorry. one. Sorry, yeah. Um, and so we would love for you to go away and have a think about that practice of examine and even design it for yourself. You might be like, I'm a much more practical person. I'm not a thinker. I'm a doer or I'm a hands-on or I'm a creator. Take that practice of examine and those different movements of asking God, search me and know me um, and make that for yourself. So I'm going to get the band to come up. Troy, I'm going to leave you because I actually think this is a moment when we can do a little bit of this practice in this space here together today. Yeah. Good. Very good. You know, sometimes we might come along and we just sit down, plonk ourselves in the seat and didn't quite realise that God had an appointment for us today. And he meets us in gentleness and he meets us honestly. And sometimes he asks a deep, probing question. So I just want to read the beginning of this psalm, this Psalm 139. I think some of the posturing of David, even in the midst of the turmoil and despair heartache that was a result of his decisions he still found God because God was near him so he writes this at the beginning of his psalm 139 he says oh Lord you have searched me and known me you know when I sit down and when I rise up You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I cannot attain it. God, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. David comes to this realisation of the enormity of God. There is nowhere he can go, no height he can scale, no depth he can descend to where God is not already present and known. And it's in that elevation of who God is and of his power and of his might 
that he then asks, Oh God, would you search me and know my heart? Test me and know my thoughts. See if there are any hurtful, harmful or wicked way in me. And lead me in the way that is everlasting. Would you, would you speak to us today? God, here in this place, I ask that you might search me because you know me better than I know myself. And Father, if there be a way in me that you would bring to my attention so that I might walk more fully in the way that is everlasting then Father in the place right now I ask that you might reveal that to me Father as you search me I thank you that you don't search me to shame me or to guilt me so that my instinct is to just quickly shovel it under the carpet, but rather to bring it to you and ask and plead and desire for your healing work in me. So if there is something that God's brought to your attention this morning about getting along, invite you in your mind's eye right now to hand that to him bring it back to his attention and to say God that's me that's truthfully me and I ask that you might bring your healing work into my life that you might repair me so that I might walk with you and others around me more fully and freely and honestly so that I might walk in your paths, your everlasting ways. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus. Amen.